What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? For us to be truly faithful to Jesus, we have to be just as faithful to Jesus when people oppose our faithfulness as we are when people approve of our faithfulness. To be faithful to Jesus, we have to be as faithful to Jesus when faithfulness is easy or as faithfulness is hard as it is when it's easy. To be faithful to Jesus, we have to be just as faithful to Jesus when our faithfulness seems fruitless as we are when it seems very fruitful. We have to be faithful to Jesus when people see and when they don't. We have to be faithful to Jesus when we want to and when we don't. Faithfulness to Jesus is actually quite complicated, quite difficult, I believe. Honestly, I've often heard people say being a Christian is easy. And I always think, I wonder if they've ever read the Bible. Because the Bible really doesn't paint the life of a disciple of Jesus as as easy. It paints it in the form of deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, to, to live dead, live crucified. In your life, to crucify the flesh, to put to death your sinful nature, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those that hate you. I mean, those are not easy things. But all of those are are part of what's required if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus is difficult. And what makes it even more difficult is faithfulness is a full-time commitment. But it's not good enough to be faithful to Jesus on Sunday and live for ourselves the rest of the week. It's not even good enough to be faithful to Jesus on Sunday through Friday and on Saturday live for ourselves. Faithfulness to Jesus demands we are faithful to Jesus every day, all day, all of our lives. So how can we develop this kind of faithfulness? How can we endure In this kind of faithfulness. Because that's the real question. Anybody can be faithful for a little while. That's not overly hard. Anybody can be faithful to just about anything for a little while. Think about like diets and exercise programs. Anybody can be faithful to a diet for a day. That's not that hard. But faithful to the diet day after day, week after week, month after month. That's where the difficulty comes in. Anybody can find an exercise program and do it once. But to do it day after day, week after week, month after month, that's where the difficulty comes in, the the endurance. And it's the same with faithfulness to Jesus. Anyone can be faithful once in a while for a little short period of time, but to endure in that faithfulness until Jesus comes back or calls us home, that's the difficulty. So how do we develop an enduring type of faithfulness? Open your Bible to Revelation 3, verse 7 through 13 is what we're going to read today. It should be on page 951 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, To the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that... Openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them 
Make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will no more go out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The title of the message this morning is An Enduring Church. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our faithful, our faithfulness. And our endurance to your name. Today we come, Lord, and we live in an unfaithful world. I mean, just everything all around us testifies of unfaithfulness. Testifies of quitting when things get hard. Stopping when it's no longer fun. And yet that's not what you've called us to do. You've called us to live entirely different from this. And Lord, we want to be who you want us to be. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to be nominal Christians. We don't want to be half-hearted and lukewarm. We want to be all in, fervent in spirit in our service and our devotion to Jesus. So today, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches through this letter. Let your Holy Spirit come and take the word and use it to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts. That the good seed of the word would sink deep down and bring forth good fruit for your glory. Let your word and spirit examine our lives. Show us things that aren't as they ought to be. Not not in, in condemnation, for that's not you. But in correction and love. To show us things that need to be fixed. Things that we ought to do to be more of who you would have us to be. Father, let your word and spirit Make the word like a mirror so we could truly see ourselves as you see us. See ourselves in light of the word and see what needs to be fixed and see what needs to be changed. And let us be doers of the word that would make those changes and do your will. Father, today we need you so desperately to work in our hearts. We need you to help us lay aside the cares of this life and the burdens that we may have brought in here. We need you to help us to focus on on your voice today, not... Not the many distracting voices that are probably shouting in our ears right now, but just to you. Father God, today fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say what you want said. Nothing more, nothing less. Let it be according to your will. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Philadelphia was a city in Lydia. Founded in about 189 B.C. by the brother of a Roman emperor. And the goal was to spread Greek and Roman language and culture to the neighboring countries. It was so successful that by 1980, the people of Lydia had essentially forgotten their language and cultures and were, uh, for all intents and purposes, they were Greeks. Like all cities of the day, idolatry abounded. Philadelphia was an important and influential city with major trade, postal, trade and postal routes running through the middle of it. In this important and influential city was a, a small church, a, a church that had little strength, Jesus says, But it was a faithful church. In some ways, the letter to the church at Philadelphia is the opposite of the letter of the church at Sardis before it and Laodicea after it. 
Sardis before it, if you'll remember from last week, received no commendation from Jesus, just correction. Laodicea, as we'll see next week, also receives no commendation from Jesus, just correction. But Sardis, or but Philadelphia, Philadelphia receives only commendation, no correction from Jesus. Now their, their commendation is based upon their faithfulness and their endurance. But they had been faithful to Jesus despite the difficulty they had faced. They had endured and they had pushed through. And so they were faithful and they were commended for their faithfulness. And what we learn from this is that an enduring church is a faithful church. And I don't I'm not sure which order it needs to go in because you can't really have one without the other. A church that endures is a church that is faithful. And a church that is faithful is a church that will endure. There is no separating it. So if we want to be an enduring church, we have to be a faithful church. And if we wanted to be a faithful church, we would have to be an enduring church. So how do we develop this sort of faithful endurance we see from Philadelphia? Well, first we have to recognize the worth of Jesus. Now, as he always does, Jesus opens the letter by telling us something about himself. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy. So first, Jesus is holy. Now, one of the ways Jesus is most clearly demonstrated to be unlike us is in his holiness. In fact, the holiness of Jesus, it reminds us he's not like us. Holiness, when applied to Jesus, means more than morally pure. It also means separate or different. Jesus in his divine nature isn't like us except a little more morally pure than we could ever hope to be. Rather, Jesus in his divine nature is something other than us. He is something entirely different from us. Now, this is in stark contrast to the Greek and the Roman gods who were essentially Little more than long-lived, super-powerful humans. They were driven by the same passions humans were driven by. They make the same kind of mistakes humans make. They are petty like humans are petty. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is holy. In His human nature, holiness means Jesus is perfectly morally pure. But in His divine nature... Jesus is holy means he is something entirely different from us. Jesus is holy. Jesus is also true. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. Jesus being true means he is true as opposed to false. Genuine as opposed to counterfeit. Real as opposed to unreal. Or might say fiction. All the other gods worshipped in Philadelphia are false as opposed to true. They are counterfeit as opposed to genuine. They are fiction as opposed to real. In some ways, this is reminiscent to the Old Testament comparing Yahweh to idols. When the Old Testament compares Yahweh to idols, the word it uses for idols often carries with the idea of something that is worthless, something that is essentially nothing. Right? It is weak and it is worthless because it is nothing. This is what Jesus is saying in this passage. Philadelphia 
And the, the gods worshipped in Philadelphia are nothing. Zeus is nothing. Apollos is nothing. Caesar is nothing. But Jesus, Jesus is true. Jesus is real. Jesus is the one and only sovereign God of the universe. Jesus is true. And then Jesus is Lord. He is the one and has the key of David. He opens doors no one can shut, shuts doors no one can open. Now the key was a symbol of power and authority. The master of the house had the power and the authority to open the door and let in whoever he wanted to come in. He could open the door and let people come in and take whatever they wanted from the house because it was his house. And he had the power and the right to do that. He also had the power and the right to lock the door and keep out whoever he wanted to keep out. The house and its contents were his and the key was a symbol of his power and his authority to do as he pleased with his house. Jesus having the key of David is meant to be in contrast with the synagogue of Satan. The Jews who are a part of the synagogue of Satan who are opposing the disciples in Philadelphia. Jesus. Not the people of the synagogue. Jesus. Not the leader of the synagogue. Jesus determined who was allowed in the kingdom of God. And if Jesus determined to open the door and allow the Gentiles of Philadelphia to enter the kingdom and be heirs of God and co-heirs with Him, then He could and no one could stop Him. And if Jesus chose to shut the door to the Jews who are of the synagogue of Satan and not allow them to come in, then He could and no one could stop him. Now, what does it mean? What did it mean for the disciples in Philadelphia? The disciples in Gaiman. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. Jesus is Lord. It meant and it means Jesus is worthy. When you read through the letter, you see the church faced opposition and was hurting. They were struggling. They had little strength in verse 8. They had been tempted to deny Jesus. Verse Nine, probably because of some sort of suffering. They had faced opposition in verse nine. Perseverance had been required. Serving Jesus was difficult. Despite the difficulties, despite the opposition, they had pressed on. But the letter isn't you've pressed on and now you've arrived. The difficulties are over. The opposition is done. You're, it's smooth sailing from here on out. Nothing had changed. All the difficulties they had faced they would still continue to face going forward. All of the opposition they had faced, they would continue to face moving forward. All of the hardships were still there. And moving forward, they would still face them. So how would they continue to press on? Why would they continue to press on and not let up, back up, or shut up? When doing that would make their lives so much easier. They would press on because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of the effort they had put forth. And Jesus is worthy of the effort they would put forth. Jesus is worthy of the pain they had endured. And Jesus is worthy of the pain they would endure. Jesus is worthy of the sacrifices they had made. And Jesus is worthy of the sacrifices they would make. Jesus is worthy of the hardships they had endured. And Jesus is worthy of the hardships they would yet endure. Because Jesus is holy. 
And Jesus is true. And Jesus is Lord. And what it took to be a faithful disciple of Jesus in Philadelphia, effort, endurance, and sacrifice, it takes to be a faithful disciple of Jesus in Guyman, Oklahoma. And the only way we will have effort, endurance, and sacrifice in the measure it takes to be faithful disciples of Jesus is to understand, to recognize, and to embrace the worthiness of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of the effort we have put forth in the past. And Jesus is worthy of the effort we will put forth in the future. Jesus is worthy of the pain we have endured in the past. And Jesus is worthy of the pain we will endure in the future. Jesus is worthy of the sacrifices we have made in the past. And Jesus is worthy of the sacrifices we will make in the future. Jesus is worthy of the hardships we have endured in the past. And Jesus is worthy of the hardships we will yet endure in the future because Jesus is Lord, Jesus is true, and Jesus is holy. An enduring church is a faithful church. And endurance demands we recognize the worthiness of Jesus. If we do not recognize the worthiness of Jesus, we will falter. In the moment of trial, in the moment of temptation, we will not endure in our faithfulness. We must recognize Jesus is worthy. Secondly, recognize the worth of Jesus. Then secondly, confidently serve Jesus. Despite the hardships, Jesus never calls them to let up, back up or shut up. Instead, he commends them for their works he commends them for what they have done. The idea of an open door, what we'll talk about more in a minute, is, is for this part, just the idea, keep going. Right? You have done well, keep going. Right? Don't stop, don't let up, don't back up, keep going. And he gives them several reasons for them to continue and confidently serve him. First is, Jesus sees our service. This is, I think, would have to have been truly important to them. As it is to us. They were serving Jesus faithfully in a very hard place. They were a church with little strength, which likely means they were small. So they weren't a church that was on the news. They weren't a church that people were writing blogs about. They were a small church in a big city and they were faithfully enduring. And it probably felt to them as though no one else saw And no one else cared. But Jesus saw. And Jesus cared. Despite the fact, humanly speaking, the world didn't notice. The holy, true, and only Lord of the universe was fully aware of what they had done. It was the same for us. And we serve Jesus. There are going to be many, many times it seems like nobody notices. There are going to be many, many times it seems like nobody cares. But Jesus knows. And Jesus cares. And if we're truly living for the applause of one, if we're truly living to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, then surely Jesus knowing is enough. It is a motivation to confidently serve Jesus. No matter the results, no matter what happens, Jesus sees. And Jesus cares. And so we serve. Secondly, Jesus makes our service fruitful. He says, I have set before thee an open door 
No man can shut it. But faithfulness was something the church in Philadelphia was known for. They had been faithful even though they had a little strength. Having a little strength either means they were a smaller church or they were feeling overwhelmed and under-equipped for the task at hand. Ever felt like that? Overwhelmed and under-equipped for what needs to be done. I feel like that all the time. Now, either would be appropriate given the context of this statement. And it would make their faithfulness stand out. They were overwhelmed, but they were faithful. They felt underprepared, but they were faithful. They were small in a big city, but they were faithful. But what we have to see is their little strength didn't stop them from their faithfulness. But they didn't use their little strength as an excuse for not doing what they knew Jesus wanted them to do. They didn't say, our church is too small to be able to influence large numbers of people for Jesus. They didn't say there are so many people that come through Philadelphia, there's no way we can possibly reach them all. They didn't say the people coming through here are so different from us, there's nothing we can do to reach them. They didn't say we have tried so hard to reach the people and no one cares so we might as well give up. They didn't say sharing the gospel is just not something I'm good at. Some of let others worry about it. They chose to be faithful despite their little strength. And they were not only faithful despite the little strength, they were also faithful despite the hardships they were facing. They had faced hardships and persecution at the hands of the Jewish believers or the Jewish population in Philadelphia. And their their opposition from the Jews was because of their faithful service to Jews or to Jesus. Good grief. This may be a long service. Their opposition from the Jews was because of their faithful service to Jesus. And it wasn't going to let up. And they knew that was going to happen. But they were faithful anyway. And and given the context of Rome, it's probably likely they didn't exactly endear themselves to the pagans either. Preaching Jesus as Lord and not Caesar and not Zeus and not Apollos. It didn't win them any friends among the unbelievers of the area. They knew full well the message they proclaimed would anger the Jews. And it would push them away. And it would make the, the pagans not like them yet. They chose to be faithful anyway. Their example is really quite challenging. Jesus says he has set before them an open door. Now, throughout the New Testament, the phrase open door pictures an opportunity to share the gospel with people who are not yet disciples of Jesus. We find this multiple places throughout the New Testament. It is an open door is an opportunity to talk to people About Jesus. People who are not disciples of Jesus. Present the gospel. Call on them to repent and believe. And become disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is doing. For the church in Philadelphia. Now the church in Philadelphia. Because of the major trade routes. Which ran through there. It was nicknamed the the gateway to the east. And the church. In so many ways. Was in a perfect place. To have a tremendous influence. They were in this. Great city. With all of these people who came in and went out. And what they could do is if they were faithful to share the gospel. And to make disciples of these people who came in. Then those people would then leave and they would go to other places. And they would begin to make disciples. They would begin to share the gospel. And so they were able to to really in so many ways cause the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. From this little church which had little strength. They were put in just 
a place for such a time as this. And all they had to do, all they had to do was be faithful. All they had to do was take advantage of the opportunities Jesus was going to give them. He was going to open doors and give them opportunities. They were in the right place at the right time to make a big impact on the world around them. If you think about it, so are we. I doubt seriously any of us could say every person we know is a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. All of us have people within our sphere of influence who are not disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm not, now listen, I'm not saying they don't profess to be believers. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we know people, whether they profess to be believers in Jesus or not, they don't live for Jesus. It is clear from their lives they are not disciples of Jesus. And we have an opportunity, because of our relationship with them, to work in their lives and help them become the disciples Jesus wants them to be. Now, a phrase I've used many times in our church to help us think about people within our sphere of influence is frangelism. Right? You've probably heard that before. Frangelism. I stole it from Elmer Towns. Frangelism means this. It's an, it's an acronym. F. Our friends. How many of us have friends who are not fully devoted disciples of Jesus? Not, or relatives are we have family members that we and i'm not talking about your third cousin twice removed who you never see or never never hear from i'm I'm not necessarily talking about that i'm talking about family members we we do have influence with family members we do talk to and visit with and we're around enough that we can influence them we can share the gospel with them or our associates an associate would be maybe a co-worker it might be someone who they're involved in the same activity we are. If you go to the coffee shop every morning at 9, there's a, a, a group of people who are there most mornings at 9. Or maybe your kids are involved in a sporting event or an activity. And you have other parents who are involved in that same activity and you see them on the regular. Right? Your activities. And then your neighbors. Most people have neighbors. Not, not Roger and Jane, obviously, they don't have any neighbors, or, or JC for that matter. Uh, but the rest of us, we have neighbors, people who live around us. And, and our neighbors, do they are they fully devoted disciples of Jesus? Now, I, let me say this with neighbors. When Elmer Towns coined this term, people, well, you guys don't have neighbors either, really, do you? You're kind of way out there, too. So, you know, some of us are not don't have neighbors. But when Elmer Towns coined this, people knew their neighbors. I mean, this was a term from the 70s or 60s. Nowadays, we don't really know our neighbors, do we? And, and this is, in, in many ways, this is a problem for us as disciples of Jesus. We're supposed to know our neighbors. So maybe one way for us to, to do this would be to go visit our neighbors. Go introduce ourselves to them. And I'm not saying, listen, I'm not a, I am not a believer in cold door knocking. Right? You go up to somebody, hey, do you know Jesus? I, now, if you're gifted that way, by all means, you go. And you do it. God bless you. I'll go with you if you want. But I don't think that's largely effective in our day, and and certainly not in our community. Our community, the Western Oklahoma mindset is, leave us alone. I mean, that, that is, if somebody comes to our door without being invited and we don't know them, we don't want them there. Right? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, 
introduce yourself. Hey, how are you? I live over here. Never met you. And you begin to build the relationship so you can share the gospel with them. Yeah. <laughs> Each one of us can look at this list and we can think of people that fit in that list within our sphere of influence who are not disciples of Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about whether or not they've made a profession of faith. That's not the point. Are they disciples of Jesus? Are they faithfully following Him with their lives? And our relationship with them gives us the opportunity. Right? Randomly walking up to somebody we don't know probably isn't overly effective. But if someone knows you love them, you care about them, you're concerned about their life, they will give you the opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to respond appropriately immediately. But it does mean they will listen. And it does mean they'll consider. And they will probably even care because you cared. And while we may feel we have little strength in this gift, of evangelism, of frangelism, trying to reach people for Jesus. We have to remember, it's Jesus who opens the door. But it's Jesus who makes our effort fruitful. We don't have time to, to look deep into it, but write these passages down and study them out. Right? Each of them talks about the power of the Word all by itself, or the power of the Gospel all by itself. Our job is not to save souls. Our job is not to win converts. Our job is to plant seeds and water seeds. And then Jesus takes what we have done and Jesus makes it fruitful. And that's our job. To take advantage of the opportunities we have with these within our sphere of influence and begin to, to look for opportunities, to take the opportunities. I mean, what kind of a difference could we make if every one of us faithfully shared the gospel once a week with someone within our sphere of influence. I mean, what if over a year, by the end of 2021, each of us one just led one person to Jesus. Jesus opened the door and opened their heart and they were saved and they became a disciple of Jesus. How many of us are in here today? What, 30, 35? How much of a difference would 35 new disciples of Jesus in our community make? And then if the 70 then that were here, if in 2022 each of them did the same thing and the 70 becomes 140, how many? How much of a difference in Guymon, Oklahoma would 140 on fire, fully devoted disciples of Jesus, how much of a difference would they make in the world? I mean, there are only 120 in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Think about it. It is exponentially powerful if we take advantage and we see it in this way. Years ago, I read a statistic by Evangelism Explosion, which said approximately 95% of all born-again Christians never lead another person to Jesus. Now, according to the statistic, this isn't they try and the people don't respond in faith and repent and believe in Jesus. The 95% are those who never, outside the church walls, talk to anyone about Christ. Never share the gospel. They just didn't try. Our little strength, however we may define little strength, is no excuse to being unfaithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ.
We must be faithful and trust Jesus will make us fruitful. Now, one last thing to point out before we move on and get to the final point. Look at the exact wording in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door that no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my, my name. Doesn't it seem Jesus made their works fruitful? He gave them that open door because they were faithful? It appears from this they had been faithful with possibly little fruit. And because they had persevered, because they had been faithful in the face of opposition, fruitlessness, and all of the other things that they would call little strength, Jesus was like, now you've been faithful. Now I'm going to open a door for you to share the gospel. I wonder sometimes if the reason we are not more fruitful in sharing the gospel is because we are not more faithful to share the gospel. I think if all of us knew we went out today and we saw somebody, our friend, and we shared the gospel and they would commit their life to Christ, if we knew they would, I think every one of us would would rush out to do it without fail. But we don't know that, do we? All we know is we're supposed to do it and, and trust. And I think what we see here is Jesus is never going to say... I'm going to save this person. Go tell them right now. Instead, what Jesus says is, go and tell. Wait and see what I do. And what he does is he waits on our faithfulness before he grants us the fruitfulness we so long to see. And and, and this isn't, listen, I, I never preach as one that's like, hey, I've got it all together. A few people would just get squared away. The world would be a better place. This is me too. I mean, I share the gospel in here all the time. I share the gospel out there, not nearly like I should. So this is me. I need to be more faithful among my friends, my associates, the people I see out there. But it's not just me. It's all of us. And as we're faithful, Jesus will then make us fruitful. We can faithfully endure in our service to Jesus because we know our service is never in vain. An enduring church is a faithful church. And faithfulness is seen as we confidently serve Jesus. So recognize the worth of Jesus, confidently serve Jesus. And then thirdly, trust the promises of Jesus. The the rest of the letter is, is an encouragement to the people. Comfort them. Encourage them to remain faithful. They had remained faithful. They had kept His name. They had not backed up. But now... They needed to keep on and keep going no matter what. And so Jesus gives them several truths to encourage their faithfulness and their endurance. The the truths were meant to motivate them and they also motivate us. So first, our faithfulness will be vindicated. Look at verse 9. Now we'll make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not. But behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, there's a lot of ideas about what this meant. Right? But here's what we know. Synagogue of Jews had opposed the Christians. They had opposed them as we're God's people and not them. We're, Yahweh is our God, not their God. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. No, they're a synagogue of Satan opposing Jesus. Right? So this is not right. And they had done all they could to oppose them. And what Jesus says, he's going to make these people come and bow 
before them and worship at their feet. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, what did that mean for them? What would it mean for us? There were several ideas about what it meant, but the one that I think makes the most sense is the day would come in which the synagogue of the Jews would see Jesus really was Lord and the church really was true. They were wrong and the church was right. That, that's essentially what he's saying. The day would come which those who had opposed the church of Jesus Christ would realize they were wrong and the church would be vindicated because they had made the right choice in surrendering and serving Jesus. That the church is being persecuted for their faithfulness to Jesus. And many times the church in our day is being persecuted for their faithfulness to Jesus as well. All over the world today, people who profess faith in Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are going to die. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be imprisoned. They're going to be cast out of their homes. For the simple reason, they are disciples of Jesus. Now, we don't see that level of persecution in our country. But we do see a lot of ridicule, a lot of mocking, a lot of scorn being poured out upon the church. And what Jesus is telling them and what Jesus is telling us is the day is going to come when those who persecute and those who mock and those who scorn the church are going to be made to see they were wrong. And the church of Jesus Christ is right. Now, this isn't probably going to happen like this week. I think this refers to the end of all things. This is a, a catch-all back to Philippians 2, where the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, again, this is a huge thing, I think, for us to understand. As disciples of Jesus... The world is never going to be for our service and our devotion to Jesus. The world is going to oppose and the world is going to mock and the world is going to scorn. And the world is going to, to ridicule to the point that we want to, to flee faithfulness to Jesus so that we can get out from underneath the scorn and the ridicule and the mocking. And, and we have to know, though, Jesus is Lord. And when He comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He is Lord. Now, in our day, there's a lot of talk, right? Common phrase you'll hear is being on the, the wrong side of history. And let me just clearly say, the wrong side of history is on the wrong side of Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus is always the right Side of history because he is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And maybe that's a hundred and fifty thousand years from today. But on that day, those who are with Jesus are on the right side of history. And they will be vindicated as such. And those who have ridiculed and scorned and mocked and persecuted are on the wrong side of history. And they will be told, depart from me. I never knew you. And they will be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. We trust the promises of Jesus. Our faithfulness to him will be vindicated at some point. Secondly, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10 says, because thou hast 
kept the word of patience, word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Jesus said since they had kept his command, they had been faithful to him, that when the hour of trial or difficulty coming upon the whole world came, they would be they would be kept through it. Now, what is the trial coming upon the whole world? The disciples in Philadelphia will be spared from, will be kept through. Well, given the context of Revelation, I would say the key, or it probably would refer to the Great Tribulation period. Well, the Great Tribulation period is described in great detail later in the book of Revelation. We're going to get there in just a few weeks. And the Great Tribulation starts bad and gets progressively worse until it culminates in Jesus' victorious return and His reign. This is a time where God will pour out His righteous wrath on rebellious humanity to such an extent people will want to die but won't be able to. People will be in such agony, the Bible says they gnaw their tongues off. In general, it will be the most horrific series of events to ever have happened. And they will happen on a worldwide scale. Disciples of Jesus will be protected by Jesus from the judgments poured out upon the nations. The saints are sealed by God before the judgments being poured out upon the nations. And these judgments fall upon those who have rejected Jesus rather than on those who have been saved by Jesus. But if you think about in terms of the plagues in Egypt, how many times during the time of the plagues did it say that God made a difference between Israel and Egypt? There was darkness in the land of Egypt, but it was light in Israel. There were This happened in, in Egypt, but it was okay where Israel was. That's the way it's going to be in the time of the tribulation. God's wrath is poured out and there will be a, a, a dynamic difference between those who are the people of God who have been sealed by God and those who are not. Now, this, of course, does not mean disciples of Jesus will be spared from troubles, trials, tribulations, and suffering in this life. Persecution and martyrdom of disciples of Jesus is a major theme in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist wages war against the saints of God and he overcomes them and kills them. Everyone. And what disciples of Jesus are promised here and in other places is being protected from the wrath of God but not necessarily from the wrath of Satan and his minions that they will direct at them. As God's wrath is poured out, the saints of God will be spared from it. But the wrath of the enemy will rise up and be launched against them. So God will, Jesus will spare them from God's wrath during the tribulation time. And then thirdly, we will be with Jesus. Jesus says in verse 11, he comes quickly uh, to hold fast that which you have. Let no man take your crown. He that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Now, Jesus tells them to hold fast first, hold fast so that you don't lose your crown. You don't lose your rewards. The Bible speaks of receiving rewards for our faithful service to Jesus. And he says, hold fast, keep going, so you don't lose those rewards. Those that overcome, the idea of the pillar in the temple that go out no more, it pictures, I think, permanence. What it's saying is, we get to be with God. We get to be with Jesus. 
right? There's no more going in and going out. We will be with him for all of eternity. And which, again, this is the ultimate hope of what we have. What makes heaven heaven? It's not the streets of gold. It's not the, 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 the houses. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. It is the presence of God. It is being with him, knowing him by sight and not merely by faith. So the promise is that there will be a culmination. Our faith will give way to sight. We will see Jesus. We will be with Jesus. And we will permanently live in His presence. This is our hope. Jesus is our hope. He is the fulfillment of it all. He is what we look for. The day will come in which we will be with Him. And we will stay with Him for all of eternity. Now one last thing to point out before we close. Jesus warns them, behold, I come quickly. But it's different here than it is in other places where he said this. He has said the idea of coming quickly in some of the other letters, but in them, it was a threat. Right? I'm going to come and war against you with a sword from my mouth. I will come and remove your candlestick. And so it was a part of the correction. I'm going to come and bring judgment. But to to these people, it's... It's meant as comfort. I'm coming. And I'm coming for you. In the other letters, it was something that should have stirred fear in their hearts. To them, it should have stirred warmth and comfort and encouragement in them. And what I thought about with this is my attitude toward Jesus' return likely says a lot about my relationship with Jesus. If I think about the end, if I think about Revelation coming to pass, Christ returning, how does that make me feel? Does it fill me with fear and dread? Or does it fill me with comfort and encouragement? And really, the way it makes me feel does say a lot. Because if I'm afraid of his return, I'm afraid he's coming to bring judgment to me. I'm afraid he's coming to war against me with the sword of his mouth. I'm afraid he's coming and I will not be found in the book of life. But if I filled with comfort, it's because I know he's coming to claim me as his own. And so while this isn't a perfect test of our relationship with Jesus, I think it's a good idea. When you think about the events of Revelation coming to pass, Jesus returning, Judgment Day, and all of those things, comfort because Christ is coming for you, or fear because Christ is coming for you. And if there's fear, Gospel or the book of John, 1 John, says there's a problem. Because love, perfect love, it casts out this sort of fear because fear is fear of judgment. So if today the thought of Jesus coming back fills you with dread because he's coming for you. Maybe today your need is to to really just spend some time crying out. Maybe you, you need to be saved. Maybe you have never truly repented of your sins and believed in Jesus to be saved. Maybe you have walked in the world. You have kind of backslidden a little bit and, and so you're not sure. And you want to be sure you can. Right? We don't have to live in fear. We're, we're not meant to live in fear. And you need to spend time just saying, Jesus, help me to know 
Am I saved? Have I truly been born again? Am I, are you coming for me in the good way? Or are you coming for me in the terrifying way? If there is fear about the coming of Jesus, we had better take that thought seriously and deal with our relationship with Him in the way we ought to. So, as we come to a close... We've talked about being an overcoming church or an enduring church, a faithful church. But as I've said before, there is no nebulous entity called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's just us. We are the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. And if the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church is a faithful church who endures, it will only be because you and I are faithful people who endure. So are you, am I, enduring and faithful when it comes to recognizing the worth of Jesus? Do you understand? Do we understand how great He is? And He is worth anything we may endure in this life so long as we get Him in the end. Are, are, Are we faithful and enduring, confidently serving Jesus? Doing it day after day, week after week, month after month. No matter who sees, no matter what happens, because Jesus is worthy. And are we faithful and enduring and trusting the promises of Jesus? It will be worth it all when we see Him. Do we know that? Are we sure of that? Does our life declare we're trusting Him? I ask you to stand. I'm not going to have our musicians come forward. We're going to have a time of silence to hear what God might be saying to us, what the Spirit is saying to us in this time. And this is a time to deal with Jesus as He deals with you. There is some area of your life the Holy Spirit has pressed on through the Word. Don't push it away. The voice telling you to push away that fear and to push away that conviction That is not the voice of the Lord. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, that is the enemy of your soul. That is your own sinful nature. That is the world's influence upon you. But it is not the Lord, the one true God, who is holy, true, and Lord. Dear friend, if the Holy Spirit is pressing on you, you must respond today to Jesus. You must turn to Him. You must cry out to Him. You must do business with Him as He is doing business with you.